So with that, we'll transition into our time in the Word. Uh, This morning, uh, John chapter 8, we'll continue our study in John's Gospel. Open with a question here. Uh, What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, in the simplest of terms, a disciple is a committed follower of a master. That's the kind of maybe the simplest way to uh, capture what discipleship looks like or what it means to be a disciple. And if if a disciple is a committed follower of a master, well, then Christians are committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master. Jesus is our master because we have come to believe that He is, as the book of Colossians tells us, the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the beginning, for in Him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Therefore, as Christian disciples, Jesus is our master. We've committed ourselves to following Him, and that makes us His disciples. Although the word disciple isn't a Christian word necessarily, it is often used in a Christian context. It was Jesus who said, go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all the nations. Therefore, although disciples can be found in any religion, the concept of discipleship is very important to Christianity. So important, in fact, that discipleship, you might say, could be considered the goal of Christianity. Maybe even the goal of the church is to make disciples. You could frame it that way. Now, by saying that discipleship is the goal of the church, we're saying that our purpose is to make disciples, to make disciples and to strengthen disciples. Both are true. Our goal is, number one, to help people see that Jesus is a master worth following. And number two, to help those who testify that Jesus is their master, to help them continue to see him that way. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the idea of baptism, they come into discipleship, and then teaching them to obey all that I commanded commanded you, they're being strengthened in their discipleship. So both principles are there in the Great Commission. Now, excuse me, if discipleship is the goal of the church, and, well, we're a church, Rosedale Bible Church, that's what we are, what does discipleship look like at Rosedale Bible Church? What does it look like here? What is, you might say, our pathway of discipleship? Well, discipleship begins right here. This is the the central hub of of discipleship is our Sunday morning gathering. It's where discipleship begins. This is where we gather to worship our master. This is where we gather to learn from our master. We sing the word. We pray the word. We read the word. We preach the word. When we do communion, we see the word. All these elements are a part of discipleship on a Sunday morning. 
And, that being said, our primary audience for Sunday morning is the believer. We're speaking primarily to believers. This is the assembly of the saints. So, discipleship begins here on a Sunday morning. Now, from this point here at Rosedale, discipleship kind of branches out. The next tier, you might say, are the various ministries that are connected to our church. Primarily, that would be adult Sunday school classes and growth groups. Those would be the next kind of stage of discipleship here at Rosedale Bible Church. In these ministries, we're primarily strengthening believers. We're helping people, we're helping you and me, grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens through teaching and mutual care for one another. That happens in adult Sunday school classes and growth groups. From there, branching further out, you might say we have women's ministry, we have men's ministry, we have children's ministry. That's kind of how the path, what's what the pathway looks like. Start Sunday morning, adult Sunday school classes, growth groups, and then men and women's ministries. That's kind of how we do it here at Rosedale Bible Church. The goal of such a process is Christ-likeness. As we grow in Christ-likeness, we grow in Christian character and we bear fruit for good works. We become like our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty simple, right? <laughs> well, as we, grow in these, in, as we grow in these ways, there's another kind of component of this, and that's we're obligated to tell or to persuade others about our master. We're, to, we're, we're obligated to tell them about the master that we serve and the experience we have in serving our master. As Peter tells us, we're always, we're always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. In telling others about our master, we welcome them into that same process of discipleship. That's what we're doing. We're telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're hoping that they enter in that assembly of the saints. Here at RBC, at Rosedale Bible Church, that would involve Sunday morning services, adult Sunday school classes, growth groups. That's, that's how we would do that. We would go tell others they would be baptized, and then they would be committed then to the teaching of Jesus here, Sunday mornings, and in these various ministries. It's a kind of a circle. That's how we would hope that it would work. To put this through the grid of our vision statement here at RBC, the process of discipleship results in people who are hungry for God's Word, who are then sacrificially caring for one another, and in that process they become desperate to reach the lost. And so they would then go out and tell other people about Jesus. You would go tell your neighbors about Jesus and invite them into that same discipleship process. That's what discipleship looks like here at Rosedale Bible Church. It might look a little different in other places, but mostly in churches around here, that's going to be what it looks like. They might call things by different names, but they're going to have Sunday morning services. They're going to have various ministries designed to make people more like Jesus, to disciple them in how to follow their master. Now, the topic of discipleship comes up in our text this morning. Excuse me. Now, if it's true, as I've said, that a disciple is a committed follower of a master, 
and that by being a Christian disciple, and that by being a Christian disciple is being a committed follower of Jesus, then what John teaches us, that is John the Apostle through the Gospel of John, what he teaches us about discipleship is that being a committed follower of Jesus begins with belief. That's, that's what John is going to add to discipleship. If you think about what Matthew might add to discipleship, the topic of discipleship, Matthew would tell us that Jesus is the king, and so we have to follow him. What Luke might add to discipleship is that anybody can be his disciple. What Mark might add to discipleship is that you need to be a disciple now, immediately. That's kind of their focus if you kind of put their, their gospels through this lens of discipleship. What John adds is that it begins with belief. As we've seen over and over again, what John is after is that we would believe. You remember the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus performed at the wedding of Cana in John 2.11. It says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That miracle in that sentence, I think, is kind of our first clue of what, Jesus, what John is getting at in this gospel. It's the first clue of the purpose for writing, which he says in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's what John is after in this book. So the, the central characteristic of a disciple, a Christian disciple, is belief in Jesus. Remember the words of Peter from an earlier study, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know, he says, that you are the Holy One of God. That being said, even among the twelve, as we know and we'll see more and more as we progress through this gospel, even among the twelve, there was one who did not believe. There was one who was not a true disciple, Judas Iscariot. If John teaches us that discipleship begins with belief, well, he also teaches us that confessing belief, that following Jesus around, even claiming to be a disciple of Jesus is not proof positive of what we're going to call true discipleship. As we soar through John's gospel, we're going to encounter various groups, and we've already encountered some, We've encountered some various groups of people that have their own ideas of what discipleship looks like. For example, after the feeding of the 5,000, we read, John 6, verses 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, this is their kind of uh, perception of what discipleship looked like, to make him king, but Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The difference between what people expected from Jesus and what Jesus came to accomplish caused a division among the disciples. They splintered, they fractured based on what their expectations were for Jesus, what they wanted from him, you might say. Remember, after this long discourse, the bread of life discourse, 
where Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to be my disciples. That caused more fracturing among the disciples. It says in John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, at this point, with the fracturing of these disciples, you might expect that Jesus might abandon this master-disciple model of discipleship. What kind of master wants to lose his disciples? If you have no disciples, nobody following you, you're not a master. Well, Jesus neither redefines discipleship nor redefines his mission. What Jesus does is he outlines or he exposes, as I'm going to kind of frame it, he exposes true discipleship. You could put it another way. When those who call themselves disciples walk away from Jesus, Jesus doesn't chase them back. What he does is he exposes the nature of true discipleship. And that's what Jesus does in John 8, 31 through 47, the text that we'll look at this morning. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus exposes us to true discipleship, true discipleship using two features, or you could turn it around the other way, two features that expose us to true discipleship. Now, recall from our study last week, Jesus said in eight, chapter 8, verse 12, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You remember, following these words, Jesus urged the Pharisees to follow him. He did so. He urged them to become his disciples, telling them that they were lost in the dark. That's why he says there, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He's help, trying to help them understand that, that they're walking in the dark. This was one of the realities that he, he taught them. You remember also that he, he taught that there's this bridge between this world and the next one. In John 8, verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is saying he's the bridge. The only way to cross from this world to the next world is over Jesus. You remember as well that he taught them that the cross was his crowning achievement. All this we studied last week. He said that in verse 28. Of course, they probably couldn't understand the full picture here, but he says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. It was after Jesus taught all these realities that John tells us in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. They believed in him. This was the result. Therefore, it's those who have believed that Jesus will speak to in these verses this morning. Verses 831 8, through 47. He's speaking to those who believe. And in fact, they do believe. But they don't believe, as we'll see. Although they are inclined to think he is their master, they are not prepared to yield to him the kind of allegiance that is required. And so if you would, please stand. We'll read our passage this morning, John 8, verses 31 through 47.
John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not believe them is that you are not of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Before the features of true discipleship emerge here in this text, Jesus exposes us to this idea of true discipleship, true discipleship in verses 31 and 32. And he does so with a, with a conditional statement. If those who believe abide in his word, then they'll be true disciples. And being true disciples, they'll know the truth and that truth will set them free turning this in the form of a question just to make it very clear, what condition must be met in order for them to become true disciples? They have to abide in his word. What condition must be met in order for them to know the truth? They have to abide in his word. And finally, what condition has to be met in order for them to be set free? Again, they have to abide in his word. If becoming a true, disi true disciple, if knowing the truth and being set free are all contingent on abiding in his word, well, we ought to know exactly what that means, I would think. What does it mean to abide in his word? Well, abide simply means to remain. Maybe you have a different translation that you're looking at. If you're looking at the NASB translation, it's, it has there, if you continue in my word. 
which is a good translation. Maybe you have the NIV translation, which says, hold on to my teaching. All, I think, rightly get at the sense of this idea of abiding, to continue to hold on to, to remain. That's what it means to abide in His Word. There's a sense in which all who believe are disciples, as we're seeing here. Yet, as Jesus is teaching us, there's another sense in which all who remain fixed to His Word are true disciples, He says. Therefore, what exposes true disciples, discipleship, is, in a word, perseverance. To stay attached to His Word, to remain in His Word, to abide in His Word. True disciple, the true disciple, is the one who remain, remains in Jesus' Word. It's the one who cares about His teaching, who seeks to understand it more and more, who desires to obey it. All of these are a part and connected to abiding in His Word. A true disciple can truly declare that Jesus is his master. The word is the vehicle that brings Jesus to us and us to him. And it's in that vehicle, his word, that we must remain. We must stay put. Acts 2.42, speaking of the early church, you remember, they were devoted or they devoted themselves the idea of remaining, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, and the prayers. Paul, during his first missionary journey, he says, Acts 13, 43, he urged them, that is the saints in Pisidian Antioch, to continue in the grace of God. It wasn't enough that he brought the message of Jesus, but then he exhorts them, continue, remain, stay in the grace of God, abide in it. The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share, share in Christ, conditional statement, if indeed, he says, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We've only come to know him if we hold it firm to the, to the end. John will write in his first epistle, 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We're going to learn more about abiding later in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 15, there's kind of a whole chapter dedicated to this principle. Lenski tells us, to remain is not only a mark of discipleship, but its very essence. This is the essence of discipleship. It's abiding in his word, remaining in his word, staying put, Calvin said, if Christ should reckon us to be his disciples, we must endeavor to persevere. It's certainly important that we begin well, but what's most important is that we end well. We stay put, we remain, we continue. Verse 32, we discover something else about true disciples. True disciples not only abide in the word, true disciples know the truth, he says, this is the result of discipleship. When Jesus speaks here about knowing the truth, he's talking about the truth. He is not talking about the truth, I should say, in some philosophical sense, some intellectual sense. That's not really what he's getting at here by talking about, in saying we know the truth. Really what he's talking about is truth in the moral sense. 
True discipleship isn't about attaining some kind of deeper understanding of reasoning or ethics. So we, 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 we believe and now we have this deeper understanding and then now we have the ability to come to the truth of a matter. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about knowing the truth. As true disciples, we've come to know that Jesus saves. That's the truth that he's talking about. That's the highest truth. It's the most important truth. Jesus saves. He is the Messiah. First and foremost, the light of truth does not save us from the darkness of error. Certainly it does that to some degree. But first and foremost, it saves us from the darkness of sin. This is why Jesus adds, and the truth will set you free. That's what that's about. Remember Jesus said in Luke 4.18, He has sent me, Jesus says this, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We can't overlook how knowing the truth and liberation interact. As we come to know the truth of God, to an equal degree we are set free. One action grows immediately out of the other. If you imagine yourself floating upon the waters of life, maybe let's say in a boat, floating upon the waters of life, the more of God's truth that comes into our lives, the more of God's truth that comes into the water, what happens to the boat? The boat rises, right? The more water that's in, in the lake. Well, to that degree, we're moving away from the bottom. We're moving away from the darkness of sin. The more truth comes in, the boat, boat rises. There, there's an equal kind of a separation between the two. The, the two. The more truth we own, the more, tr- the, the more truth we understand, it produces a corresponding measure of freedom in our lives. In what sense does the truth set us free? From what have we been rescued? To what have we been rescued? Well, these questions, answers to these questions will emerge as we answer, as we look at these features of discipleship. Now, you should know the, these two features that I'm highlighting in this passage, they're, they're so blended that it's not really clear where one ends and the other begins. They're, they're kind of both in here. But, you know, you know <laughs> to be successful as a teacher, I've kind of outlined them. So we'll look at one and then the other. We'll look at the first feature in verses 33 through 40. I put it this way, true disciples will practice the works of the Father. True disciples will practice the works of the Father. Now, apparently, these Jews, they didn't realize that they were in bondage. It's often the case with men who put their trust in their privilege, whether it's national or social or religious, and these Jews, of course, are no exception. They put their trust in their religion and in their ethnicity. That comes out in this text. Their words in response to Jesus are proof of slavery. Verse 33 They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, if we know anything about history, anything about history, we know that the the Jews have been enslaved by just about everyone, just about every nation. Up to this point in history, they had been in bondage to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and Rome. All of those nations have held the Jews captives. 
I'm guessing these Jews are not speaking of political captivity. I don't think they're that stupid. But of spiritual captivity. Although they might have been under the thumb of some foreign power, they viewed themselves free from spiritual captivity. They trusted greatly in their Judaism and their ethnicity, and they saw themselves as whole. They saw themselves as pure, as healthy. If a healthy man has no need of a physician, well, what does a, free, what does a, a slave need? What does a free man need? A free man doesn't need a deliverer. So they say, how is it that you say you will become free? How can you say that to us? We're not enslaved. Verses 34 through 38, Jesus explains what he means by slavery and freedom. He grabs their attention and he should grab ours by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? That's that thing that Jesus does that says, pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you. Underline this. He says, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Those who practice sin, well, they're those who can't break free from it. They're enslaved by it. Tense of the verb, the present participle, is important. It, it views sin as a, as a life principle. Jesus is speaking here about inerrant fallenness, essential wickedness. Not so much about individual acts of sin, although those are included, but it's bigger than that. It's a principle of life. Those who practice sin, as Jesus says here, are those who we might say are characterized by sin. That's one way to put it. They're characterized by sin. And they're characterized this way because they're enslaved by sin. They're a slave to sin. To be a slave is to be controlled by another. So sin is their master. Sin controls them. The unbeliever is a slave, Titus 3.3, to various passions and pleasures. He is in the bond of iniquity, Acts 8.23. Carson reminds us, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against the God who has made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness and the evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of the worship of the Creator. What does Paul say in Romans? They exchanged the, the truth about God, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the Creator. Verses 35, 36, Jesus uses an axiom to further illustrate his point. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. It's an aphorism, it's an axiom, it's a maxim, you might say. The point here is that where a slave's position is temporary, a son's position is permanent. We understand that. A slave has no rights, no security. He can be sold. Even if a son does leave, well, he has the position of a son he can't lose that position. He belongs. He has rights. He has an inheritance. He is the son. Well, of course, Jesus, as soon as he, he uses that maxim, he, he doubles down, right? Again, in that next verse. So if the son, your translation probably has a capital S there, 
Jesus as the Son. So if the Son sets you free, well, you will be free indeed, Jesus says. He moves immediately from a Son to the Son. And the Son, the one who belongs forever, the one who has eternal rights and privileges, who has a heavenly home, he is able to give real freedom. Therefore, Jesus can set the captives free, and he can say, you will be free indeed. Now, what in the world does it mean to be free indeed? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, skip down to verse 38. I speak of what I have seen from my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did, and you are doing the works your father did. Poyeo, this word to practice, which we saw earlier, to do, is all over this text. Everyone who does sin is a slave of sin. The Jews do what they heard from their father. If they knew Abraham, they would do the works he did. You don't hear the truth because you don't do what Abraham did. At this point, you really see this feature emerge in this text. It steps out into the light. True disciples will practice the works of their father. And these men are not doing that. This is what it means to be free indeed. It's to do what God wants. That's what freedom looks like. There's a danger related to the subject of freedom that liberation from sin means we can do anything we please. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. You've heard it declared, we're not under law, we're under grace. People say that. Maybe you have said that. There's a sense in which this is true. We are under grace in the sense that we've received forgiveness. That forgiveness is granted not by works, but by grace through faith. That's absolutely true. But freedom in the Bible never amounts to the freedom to do anything we please. The Bible never teaches that. In no place does it teach that that's what freedom is in the Bible. The freedom of which Jesus speaks of and the New Testament in general is the freedom to do what we ought. That's what the freedom is. Jesus says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul said it this way. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you were committed. And having, he says, been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's what freedom is. You're right, we're not under law. But the right response is, to that or the the corresponding truth to that is not we're under grace so much as it's we're under the law of righteousness. We're under the law of love. As liberated captives, we're able to not sin. That's what freedom is. We're no longer enslaved by sin. We're not in the bond of iniquity. We can now present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, and Paul says, and to eternal life. That's freedom. That's the Christian life. 
what these opponents of Jesus needed to understand was that they were enslaved to sin. And being enslaved to sin, they could only act in line with their nature. That's all they could do. They were unable to please God. Double negative. They were unable to not sin. If, on the other hand, they were to believe in Jesus, they were to become true disciples, as he says here, they would be freed from their sin. And being liberated from their sin, well, they could claim, then they could really claim Abraham as their father and God as their greater father. Verse 39, Jesus answered them, Abraham is our, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, in the verses that follow, the second feature of discipleship will emerge, and it's this, I put it this way, true disciples hear the words of the Father. True disciples hear the words of the Father. As Jesus and the Pharisees in this chapter, as, as they interact, the tension between them escalates. In fact, next week, Lord willing, by the end of this chapter, we'll see the Jews pick up stones to try to kill Jesus. The, the conflict, only, conflict only escalates throughout this chapter. As we've seen, there's a conflict here about whether or not the Jews are enslaved. As the tension grows, the conflict becomes about the father, the Jew, or about a father. The Jews claimed that Abraham was their father, verse 39, but Jesus suggests that they have another father. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. At this point, we're reading, and we're like, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. Verse 41, and you are doing the works your father did, he says. Now, the Jews, in response, they resort to an ad hominem argument. They, they attack him personally. That's what they do. In verse 41, the backside of verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one Father, even God. They can't say anything else except that. And so, it's possible here they're alluding to his birth. Maybe he was born out of wedlock, the confusion about where he came from. It's possible also that they were suggesting that he was a Samaritan. Verse 48, we'll see this next week. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Either way, they're, they're resorting to a personal attack against Jesus. They're attacking him personally, I should say. They're asserting in doing this that they're not apostate. They have a firm grasp on their origin. They know who their father is, even God, is what they're saying. Jesus responds in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. You see, I'm on a mission from the Father, is what he's saying. Even further, verse 43, why do, you not why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus is saying, my language is the language of deity. You can't hear my language. I speak a different language. So then, why don't they love Jesus? Why can't they hear the language of deity? Well, the answer finally comes in verse 44. 
You are of your father the devil, he says, and your will is to do your father's desires. Wow. What an accusation. To these men? The devil? We finally see what Jesus is getting at. This is the father that he spoke about in verse 38 and verse 41. What a stark contrast between who these Jews thought they were and who Jesus reveals them to actually be. Servants, slaves of Satan. Jesus tells us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and he's the father of lies. That's what he says here. We know this. We know that it was the devil that robbed Adam of spiritual life. It was the devil... It was the devil that became a murderer of the whole human race. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You might say, we were in the loins of Adam when he sinned, and so death spread to all men because of that sin. And so Satan, the devil, is a murderer from the beginning. And the impetus of such calamity was deceit. It was a lie. God said, you will surely die. And what did Satan say? You will not surely die. It's a lie. You see, the devil has no interest in the truth. Jesus tells us he doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. If and when he does speak, he speaks his native language. And his native language is deceit. His language is designed to deceive. Jesus, on the other hand, as we see, I mean, go through this and circle the word truth. Every time you hear the word, see the word truth, I mean, you circle 10 or 12 of them or something. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks the truth. He tells the truth. And most interestingly, it's precisely this that, is, that results, you might say, in unbelief. It's the cause of unbelief. Speaking the truth is the cause of unbelief. Ah, I don't understand. But Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Seems like the opposite would be true. Here's a profound reality. God's children will so love the truth that they will naturally believe in Jesus. The children of the devil will so cherish lies they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. Because their father is the devil. This is the blazing center of unbelief. Man is so entrenched in his unbelief. He's so engulfed in the flames of rebellion, so boxed in by deceit and wickedness that church, only a monergistic work of God will save him. It has to begin with God. They have to hear the truth. And the only way they can hear is if God acts, if God moves. John is telling us that over and over on the pages through his gospel. We already studied it in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus comments, John comments on this earlier in John 2. 
You remember this, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's a profound concept right there. Maybe they believed they were disciples, but again, were they true disciples? I don't know. But we're learning what a true disciple looks like, abiding in his word, practicing what the Father does, hearing the words of the Father. All of this is involved in true discipleship. Now, well, I guess verse 47 we should read just puts the nail the final nail in that, in that point. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. God is at the very center of that. Now, if you're here this morning or you're listening to my voice somewhere, you're unsure, maybe you're unsure if you're truly a disciple. Maybe you don't know. Consider these things that we're talking about. Friend, John 8, 46 is a powerful, powerful verse. Think about what Jesus says here in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Let's pause on that for a second. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Who could say such a thing? That's the most audacious thing ever to say. The, 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 the directness of it almost proves it. Who could say such a thing? The fact that Jesus says that is a testimony to its truth in the face of the most religious people in the world. People who have done nothing but spend the last year and a half or so following him around and trying to prove him guilty of something. And the only thing they can come up with is, well, you healed on the Sabbath. Jesus says, well, you know what? You circumcised on the Sabbath. You made a little part of a man's healthy, a body healthy. Well, how about I make a whole man's body healthy? What did they say to that? Can't say anything. They had nothing to say. If the best religious and theological minds of the day find it impossible to marshal a single convincing proof that Jesus sinned in any way, is it possible that Jesus should be listened to? Maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe we should reconsider his words. What about you? Do you believe Jesus is telling the truth? I hope you do. Notice the emphasis throughout these verses on hearing. You saw the emphasis on practicing or doing in those, that kind of that first section, but in these verses you have this emphasis on hearing. Jesus claims to be a man who tells the truth in verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. And in verse 45, he says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He says the Pharisees can't bear to hear his words in verse 43. And then in verse 47, as we saw, God hears the words of God. 
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So we have these features of true discipleship. How do we determine the difference between a firm or fickle faith? What's the difference between discipleship, true discipleship, firm or fickle faith? Well, here's the answer. You have to start with verse 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's from there we discover that we have to abide in his word, and to continue in his word means we have been set free from slavery. We've been set free from sin, and so now we can practice the works of the Father. We can do what we ought to do. We can be obedient from the heart is what he's saying. And so, to be true disciples, we're practicing the works of the Father. And to continue in His Word means we're constantly being influenced by His Word. We're hearing His Word constantly. We're hearing it speak to us. What does Psalm 119.11 say? Something like, I have hidden my heart, hidden your word in my heart, so that I might not, what? Sin against you. I mean, isn't that capture it? If, if you're struggling with indwelling sin, if there's something in your life that's just getting at you and you can't break free from it, God's Word says, put His Word in your heart. Fill your mind. Abide in His Word. Soak it in. Remain in it. Continue in it. That's how you fight against that sin in your life. Now, a question as we close in this passage, specifically in this passage, as we're studying it, what is the primary threat to true discipleship? What's the primary threat in, in the, these Pharisees' lives? What is the primary threat of true discipleship? Sin, okay. What's blocking their exposure more specifically? Pride. Unbelief. This is good. Notice. We are offspring of Abraham. Abraham is our father, verse 39. We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. To be really specific, I think it's their physical ancestry and their spiritual heritage. Of course, it works its way out in pride and sin, yes. But that's what they're clinging to. Their heritage, both physically and spiritually. This is shielding their exposure to true discipleship. You've heard of Jonathan Edwards. Of course you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. I hope you have. Edwards was a theologian and a pastor in the 18th century. He's probably most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you studied it in high school. In the summer of 1874, years after Edwards' death, nearly 500 people gathered in Stockbridge, Massachusetts for an Edwards family reunion. That gathering teemed with professors and business executives, government officials, ministers, even, according to one account I read, women of unusual beauty. This gathering of the Edwards family is, might have been the proudest celebration of ancestry ever had on American soil. In 1900, a man named A.E. Winship, maybe you've heard of this, he did a study on Edward's descendants. The study is famous. Winship discovered that from a single union, Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Pierpont, 
came 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, a dean of a medical school, 80 public officials, including three U.S. senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a controller of the U.S. Treasury, and a vice president of the United States of America, all from Sarah and John. Winship concluded, there is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. The family has cost the country nothing in pauperism, poverty, in crime, in hospital or asylum service. On the contrary, it re represents the highest usefulness. We can conclude having an industrious and godly ancestry is to one's advantage. It's good. That was done in 1900. I have no idea what other things you might say about that family. Now, if you paid really good attention in your high school history class, you might know something about the Edwards family that oftentimes gets left out, and that is that Jonathan Edwards' daughter gave birth to a boy, and his name was Aaron Burr. Now, if you know anything about, or I guess if you paid attention in high school history class, maybe you know something about Aaron Burr, or you probably saw the play Hamilton, I assume. Maybe you know that Aaron Burr was the man who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And Aaron Burr was, well, you might say a contentious man. As grand as an ancestry of Edwards had, or that Edwards had, well, that ancestry couldn't guarantee fitness forever. There's a, a constant danger in religion that as we pass on godly heritage, those who take the baton will merely trust in that heritage. That's a danger. And there's a constant danger that the baton that we're holding, the faith that we've been given, that that baton, the one that we're holding, is really more about someone else's spiritual health than about ours. If you have a terrific physical ancestry and a terrific spiritual heritage, praise the Lord. These things are of inestimable worth, for sure. But if that heritage is not appropriated, if it's not made real in your life, well then, church, just like with the, these Jews, it's a curse. It was a curse to them. They couldn't see past it. Has the light of Christ shone upon you? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you been revealed as a true disciple? Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
If you are a true disciple, you will abide in his word. You will practice the works of the Father, and you will hear the words of the Father. Amen? Joel.